Hello and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess. Thank you for joining me. I hope you had a great weekend and we will f- we will begin this new week um, with a, a new podcast uh, on the Taj Mahal, like I promised. It'll take about a couple of podcasts to finish this chapter, uh, about two, three. I've been working on it uh, for four years, uh, four years, and I come, came to the conclusion that the Taj Mahal was built prior to 536 AD. Okay. Um, so we'll go through this. Uh, we'll give you context, and then we will go to the chapter little by little. So the Taj Mahal, um, supposedly built by Sajahan, the Mughal emperor. Um, a few years ago, a friend of mine asked me to get her a miniature Taj Mahal from a trip to India. I was not successful, so on landing in Canada, I did some research on the internet and trying to purchase it online. Instead, I found websites stating the that Taj Mahal was not an Islamic Mughal tomb, but an ancient Hindu temple. I brushed it off as media conspiracy theories and continued my research. But the more I looked for a miniature Taj, the more websites I found contesting the claim. I decided to dig in and was more than stunned to find out what I researched. The next trip to India, I bought some books by an author, some would say is far right. (laughs) That's typical of the left wing. If you're not far right, you're hate speecher, you're phobic, you're intolerant, you're fascist. It's just a code word for inconvenient truths being unearthed um, that they do not want you to access and to know what's going on. Well, this gentleman, this author was called Pian Oak. I found nothing far right about him. He had an opinion and chooses to challenge the status quo, which by all means he has the right so far to do. Um, Even in India, the left cannot stand anyone challenging their feudalistic elitist status quo. So anyway, I, I bought some of his books, read it and agreed with some of the rhetoric, but it was incomplete. There was more in the bag and I was not convinced. It had taken me... It's just taken me two to two to four years to understand his mentality. So I bought several books of his that were not uh, off the topic, was of different topics. Because when I do research, I don't look at just the topic. I look at the mentality of the author. I need to see what his mentality is, uh, her mentality, what how they think, how they project concepts, uh, the past, the present, the future. I like to know the 316, not just that one concept. Um, and so I, I bought a couple of books. I read it to understand his rhetoric. Um, but I was still, you know, not totally satisfied. So another reason I buy a couple of books of the same order is that there's always a context. So you have to match the findings of the Taj Mahal with the similar architecture of its period, prior, beyond, um, and the context, historical context, economic context, geological, geographical, and all of the above. And it takes a while. It's not something that's done in a couple of days. And I came across one gentleman in America, a Christian convert to Islam. And I, 
I laughed my lungs out when I finished this. Uh, and and the person was Sheikh Hamza Yusuf of USA. If you follow tele evangelist or you know Muslim preachers, um, Islamic preachers, and you see this one is this gentleman is very prominent. Um, he thinks he's so smart now because he's converted to the religion of peace. Um, he, there was a. He was giving a sermon, and he he calls in his sermon a Hindu man with a PhD who claimed that the Taj is a Hindu temple, a nutcase with a PhD. I'm like, oh, really? This guy, Hamza Yusuf, knows everything, uh, apparently, because God has come down for the heavens. Uh, I don't know how much of research he's done. I don't presume he's done anything. But after two to four years of my research, I can tell you that the Taj was built before 536 A.D., so let's get down to it and see if the Islamic Sheikh is correct or if he's really showing a mirror image of who he is. That is a nutcase with a PhD. Now, I don't have any PhD, but I'm, I'm capable of doing research and we'll see uh, where we go with this. So to begin with, prior to my research, I thought like every other Indian that the Taj Mahal was authentic. Mughal chronicles call it the Illumined Tomb or in Persian, uh, Rauza i Munavara. That's Munavara, M-U-N-A-V-V-A-R-A. However, in India, we know that below all Christian churches and Islamic monuments built before 1947, somewhere lies a Hindu temple. The invaders would destroy the temple, build a church or a mosque, sometimes using the same structure, sometimes not destroying anything at all. They just rebranded the, the the structure, um, adjusting it to suit their empire. This is to show themselves as the rulers of the land. Now, the Mughal rulers mentioned before were mostly illiterate. They spoke Turkish and after that Persian. And they were Turco-Mongol descent and they came to India to loot, which was the, uh, their religion of its time. However, they were all tribal nomads. The religion was a screen, was a screen to, or should I say, the ideology was a screen to camouflage and legitimize their loot and plunder of the Indian subcontinent. The chieftains called themselves Khan, which came down from Genghis Khan, meaning leader, chief, king, prince. They were never witness to a massive civilization like that on the Indian subcontinent, um, and they and they knew we had gold and diamonds. Now, the Mughal Empire uh, were refugees to the Indian subcontinent. They allied with previous, Mughal, previous uh, Islamic caliphates who were already on the land, and slowly their lines grew, and at one point it took over. But originally they were... Um, they were refugees from their own land because they were kicked out by their own people. So a group of people who were kicked out by their own people coming to a new land and saying, okay, I'm going to be your king uh, and trying to tell us that they're building such high monuments when they couldn't even, um, you know, keep hold of their own land. So pray tell. Now, when Genghis Khan died, his empire was split among his sons, of whom one descended married Timurlane the Turco-Mongol warlord, or the butcher of Central Asia, as he's called, they had, they had violence in their DNA. Parts of Central Asia until 651 AD was occupied by the Persian Empire. These Persianized Central Asians 
had also previously descended on the South Asian in say on South Asia in the third and fourth century. Um, and they were known as the Scythians. That's S C Y T H I A N S. The northern part of the Indian subcontinent had been Persianized already for a thousand years. The Mughal kings would have felt at home with existing Persian architecture or Indian architecture converted to Persian architecture. Um, and among these set of Mongol tribes, their cousins also from Central Asia and the steppes around uh, a couple of centuries before had... Um, Descended, uh, descended upon Anatolia to form what we have come to know as the Seljuk Turks. As the Seljuk Sultanate declined, they gave way to another Turk, a Mongol group, who we came to know as the Ottoman Empire on Anatolian soil. Uh, they rebranded the Byzantine civilization and its heritage. They kept their Ottoman stamp, cleverly eradicating the source over centuries. Similarly, on the Indian subcontinent, the Mughal Empire did the same thing. They descended on the land that had already a great civilization. They provided nothing in return, uh, which is not what we're told. We already had architecture, medicine, sciences, besides gold, silver, and diamonds. Once they got their foot in the door, rebranding the Kufar Hindu civilization was no problem to them and their Ottoman cousins in Anatolia. One of the more famous kings of that Ottoman Empire was, uh, or rather should I say the most famous of them all, was Suleiman the Magnificent, as he's called. He ruled from 1520 to 1566 uh, AD. Uh, Suleiman, like all Ottomans, had a harem at his disposal. Uh, disposal, sorry. He fooled them with girls from the Ottoman war campaigns or sex slaves. Um, but out of them, he married one girl, one slave girl called Horam Sultan. Often called Roxolana in the West, this was very unusual for their culture. He broke from tradition as he, as she was a Christian slave of the Russian, of Russian, Russian origin. Although he's, he is said to have many other wives, she was his favorite. She made her presence felt during his reign. Ottoman sultans never married their concubines. So in 1533 or 34, when he married her, it raised eyebrows among the Ottoman elite. She remained in the sultan's court for the rest of her life. And when she died, Roxolana was buried in the courtyard of the Suleimani Mosque, in a domed mausoleum visited by millions of tourists even today. Now remember, the Ottoman Sultan was the Caliph of the Islamic Empire. Does the story sound familiar? Uh, remember it since it's going to come up later. So yes, it's familiar. A hundred years later, approximately, there was another Turco-Mongol Empire, also known as the Mughal Empire. Its third emperor, Akbar, uh, who, reigned, who was born in, 19, in 1542, established uh, or the Indian Mughal Caliphate, commenced by his grandfather, Babur, and assumed the title uh, Amir al-Muminin, commander of the faithful. It was surely due to an underlying rivalry with his uh, fellow Turco-Mongol empire on the Anatolian soil and that of the Ottomans 
Uh, Akbar's chroniclers call Agra the seat of the sublime caliphate. In the chronicles of his grandson, Emperor Sajahan, or known as the Padshanama, Agra is referred to as the abode of the caliphate. Uh, Akbarabad. So Akbar called it the seat of the sublime caliphate. Uh, Sajahan called it the abode of the caliphate, Akbarabad. Growing up, I often heard a reference to him as Emperor of the Fate, um, or Commander of the Faithful. Sajahan meant King of the World. His grandfather, Akbar, was had abandoned Islam by starting a new religion called Deen-e-Ilahi. This was not because he believed in religious tolerance with the Hindus, but he wanted to wean power away from the theocratic class. He would also have not wanted to share the caliphate with the Ottoman theologians. Um, however, the theologians never bought it. Akbar's son's grand, Jahangir, in his correspondence with a Persian king, used the title Caliphate for the Empire of India. Now, it was Sajahan, king of the world, who supposedly commissioned the Taj Mahal. Do you not think he wanted to overpower the Turks and show them a thing or two about caliphates? Supremacist rivalry between two kingdoms was a fallout of centuries of personal vendettas that would have spiraled from tribal warfare among their nomadic ancestors on the Central Asian steppes. Going one step further, Suleiman the Magnificent, former emperor of the Ottoman Empire, would have always been on Sajahan's mind. Commissioning the Taj for his wife, or not-so-beloved wife, Mamtaz, would be the perfect upsurge to the Ottoman Suleimani Mosque, uh, apparently allegedly built for um, uh, Roxana. Um, now, going... Um, sorry, commissioned... Uh, commission for the Taj, um, the Suleiman commissioning the Taj for his beloved wife, uh, so thereby replicated the Ottoman Suleiman's mosque, uh, which, in my opinion, was a Byzantine monument rebranded as an Ottoman architectural uh, marvel. There's nothing, in my opinion, there's nothing Ottoman about the Soleimani Mosque. It's a Byzantine monument converted and rebranded. Um, so the Dome Mausoleum, nestled in the Gardens of Paradise, would have been a perfect upstart to his rivals. Thus, from the story, from this story, we get the Taj Mahal and the Palace of Love. Or was it really a Palace of Love for Sajahan? Uh, or just a story that was borrowed from his Ottoman cousins on the um, Anatolian plateau. The story fits perfectly, but let's see if the monument fits the bill. So Sajahan was an upstart prince and later king. Um, we know that he wanted to emulate his grandfather or the Emperor Akbar. He wanted his grandfather's power and magnificent grandeurs and legacy. He tried to emulate his grandfather in architecture and other works left behind. However, another king he would have wanted to do um, and emulate was Suleiman the Magnificent, his Ottoman rival. So Sajahan's name at birth was Prince, wait for this, Shabdud Din Muhammad Kuram. That's a long name. But his royal title 
was even longer. So I'm going to spell it out. Abu Muzaffar Shihab al-Din Muhammad Sabib i Kiran Sani, Sajahan Pacha Ghazi, son of Nur al-Din Jahangir Pacha, son of Akbar Pacha, son of Humayun Pacha, son of Babur Pacha, son of Umar Sheikh Mirza, son of Sultan Abu Said, son of Sultan Muhammad Mirza, son of Mirza Shah, son of Amir Taimur Shabib Ikiran. The title of Pacha was superlative imperial title conferred on the Mughal sovereign and sometimes his consort. The word is of Persian origin. Pad means master and Shah means king. Now, Sajahan's wife, for whom he apparently built the Taj Mahal, was actually, um, ha- she actually had a couple of names. The official court chronicles state her auspicious real name as Arjuman Banu Begum. So that was her official be- name at birth. Her married name was Mumtaz al-Zamani. Zamani, Zamin means land. So, Mumtaz of the land. The calligraphy, however, the Taj monuments figure her name as Mumtaz Mahal. So, to match her name transcribed on the mausoleum after her death in 1631, she was put down as Mumtaz Mahal in some text. They could have easily changed her name from Mumtaz al-Zamani to Mumtaz Mahal uh, to show the mausoleum was named after her. Well, as some would say, they could have named it after her real name, but what were they trying to show the world by changing it from Mamtazi al-Zamani to Mamtaz Mahal? Well, Mahal means palace or mansion in Hindi and Urdu. Um, why, did, why did they insist on naming her after mansion, which sounds hideous, especially if she already has a regal name? Well, Mahal comes from the Sanskrit word Mahalaya, meaning dwelling place of great refuge, a place where travelers stop. Uh, Mamtaz also is said to be the descendant of the line of Saida, from the family of Saids of Rai, a descendant of the grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, in official chronicles. Is it because the mansions were already standing and they want to blend in with the existing locals? A very important fact that nowhere in the chronicles have I seen the word Taj Mahal. It's probably a later edition. The Taj is always mentioned in Sajahan's uh, period as Rauza i Munavara, the illumined tomb. There's no word Taj Mahal. So what could have happened would have been the following. Sajahan's wife, Mumtazi Zamani, meaning distinguished lady of the land, had her name changed and given an unofficial title, Mumtaz Mahal in debt, meaning the distinguished lady of the Mahal, or the resting place. Sajahan's wife was not native to the Indian continent, um, and so the royal family probably would have given her a new name after marriage to render her to a new kingdom. After her passing, her new name in debt became Mumtaz i Mahal, being the new resident of the mausoleum. Mumtaz i Mahal became Mumtaz Mahal over time, and went on to become a new name of the mausoleum itself, which was not official, but certainly used as parlance by the locals. Then this would have got shot into Taz Mahal, T-A-Z, by the natives of Agra over the centuries as the um, 
later emperors of the Mughal Empire neglected their architecture and slowly, slowly dwindled into nothing. His, which, um, so the official name and appellation of the tomb, Rauza i Manuvra, was forgotten. It became the Taj Mahal and the Taj Mahal by the English. Uh, who were later rulers of the land. No Indian government has ever bothered to verify facts, um, as with 95% of the false data they have fed us over the last 70 years. Very few people know this, and this name, and today we have the world-famous Taj Mahal. So I'll stop it at that. I hope it gave you food for thought. Um, and... I wish you a great uh, evening. Uh, do research as much as you can and go from there. Thank you and have a good day.